As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, A Line Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Welcome to the next episode of this series of Aligned Traced, which will focus on female pioneers in the history of virtual reality. I'm Paula Stronten, I'm a transdisciplinary VR artist with a background in architecture and taught on the AA's Media Studies program. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Tamiko Thiel, a pioneer in augmented reality art and the visionary behind the design of the Connection Machine, the first commercial AI supercomputer. Hey Tamiko, thank you so much for coming today. I would like to start with your very first VR project and dive right into Starbright World that you developed almost 30 years ago as creative director with Steven Spielberg. So to give our listeners a little bit of context, Starbright World was a multiplayer online platform for seriously ill children that allowed them to interact from hospital in a 3D virtual world using avatars and chat video conferences. How did you happen to work on this project? How did you work with Steven Spielberg? And yeah, what was it? I'll try and keep this short, but there's a lot of details. Basically, the uh, the important detail for the history of VR is that in 1992 was the first time that uh, that um, uh, uh, form of VR was developed that could run on mere PCs instead of $100,000 workstations. And that was OpenGL from uh, Silicon Graphics. And so... So this was sort of bubbling up, and in 1994, I landed in uh, San Francisco, was looking for work, and through friends, uh, came to the company Worlds Incorporated, which had picked up this technology and was talking with the Starbright Foundation to about realizing it. Uh, what they wanted to call Starbright World, which was an idea of Steven Spielberg's to create a virtual world with this technology that was now newly accessible so that children who couldn't leave their hospital beds, couldn't go outside and play, could have a very much more richer ex experience in their lives by using virtual worlds. So they were looking, Worlds was looking for a person who had experience dealing with technology and with art. And in 1994, there weren't a lot of people running around with that sort of backgrounds. And so actually the fact that I had a technical background, I had studied product design at Stanford and mechanical engineering at MIT, and then Uh, joined the MIT uh, startup Thinking Machines Corporation as the lead product designer of the Connection Machine, which was the first commercial artificial intelligence supercomputer. So this combination of, of a strong visual background at that point, I also had gone to art school in, uh, in Munich. And so my combination of a technical background, a strong arts and design uh, background was unusual for that time. That's why uh, I got the job, basically. And can you tell us a little bit more about Starbright World? Like, how did it look? How did people yeah, use it? How did they interact through it? They also had these virtual avatars. What were they? Yeah, if I want to go into detail on the avatars, that's also a little bit of an excursion. At that point in 1994, uh, we were running this uh, uh, Starbright world on monitors. 
So as 2D, not as stereo, because the doctor said these kids are already nauseous from their medication. They don't need to get nauseous from the poor quality VR headsets that were available at the time. So it was just 2D on a monitor, but the quality we could do was 640 by 480. And that's very pixelated, especially for today's aesthetic. So uh, three-dimensional uh, avatars, as is common today, were just too much for the processes of the time. So the avatars were actually what we, we called uh, hologram avatars. It's a misnomer, but basically they were animated drawings. And depending on the angle that you're looking at the avatar, we would present the correct animation. So they were literally hand-drawn, had really a beautiful uh, aesthetic quality. And, uh, and some of our artists, I had a team of two programmers and two artists, and so they created some of them. And then Steven Spielberg just happened to have a whole bevy of the world's top animators who were twiddling their thumbs as a, they were waiting for a project of his to start. And so they also contributed avatars. Video conferencing was only possible because Intel gave us high-end PCs. Um, Sprint gave us really fast uh, connection lines between the hospitals. You could not do this from the home. So we were using text chat as the communication method uh, for avatars to talk to each other. And uh, video chat was a separate window that came up that would allow the kids to actually see each other or to see Steven Spielberg, who was running around as his avatar, E.T. It's super exciting. I think the fact that you also yeah, were part of these more hardware or kind of network developments, I think you mentioned before quickly, that uh, you were part of the development of the AI supercomputer where, while you were lead uh, yeah, product designer on Danny Hill's connection machine. And this was the fastest computer on earth in 1989. And uh, it's now exhibited in the collection of MoMA in New York. So I think it's super interesting that yeah, an art museum exhibits a computer. So could you tell us a bit more yeah, how you happened to work on that fastest computer, how it looked like and why an art museum you think is showing it today? It was actually because I was friends with Danny Hillis and other people in the MIT AI lab. I did not study in the AI lab, but they held the best parties. <laughs> so so uh, I hung out with them and um, uh, at the same time also started uh, taking classes in what became the MIT Media Lab. Uh, this was several years before the Media Lab even existed. So that was the sort of crowd I was running around in at MIT. And then um, Danny just uh, talked to me three days after my master's graduation ceremony at MIT and said, um, I've actually gotten funding now to build my PhD thesis, The Connection Machine, and uh, can you uh, oversee the product design? And he lured me into it by saying, if you come, you get to work with uh, Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize physicist. And I said, where do I sign? Where do I sign? Because I had studied physics as an undergraduate and he was our big hero. And uh, and so the, the, the machine, also a long story, but basically the big difference at that point was that even the fastest supercomputers were serial machines. They had at the most maybe two processors because the wisdom of the time was that parallel processing is impossible. 
Danny said, well, if the brain can use millions of tiny, simple, stupid processors and intelligence can evolve out of that, why don't we try the same thing with computers? So he had uh, 64,000 processors in this machine, and they were richly connected together in a 12-dimensional Boolean N-cube. This was also Richard Feynman's suggestion. And so I had to figure out how to wire it. How do you wire a 12-dimensional Boolean N-cube? And he basically uh, gave me sort of the basic steps one, two, three, four dimensions, and then said, and after that, it's too difficult to draw. And I'm like, yeah, but I still have to understand it. I still have to be able to draw it. So I worked out this uh, this design. I played around with it and came up with a configuration where I realized every three dimensions, it repeated this form of a cube of cubes. And to make a very long story very short, that's what we ended up using for the form of the machine, a cube of cubes, but we made the doors in the front and the back translucent and moved the LEDs that are usually right next to each processor chip to the front of the board so they would be visible from the outside. And this way you could essentially see the machine thinking as it went through its, its uh, programs. And we have um, basically uh, eyewitness evidence that when Steve Jobs saw the first photo of this machine, he said to a good friend of mine, Joanna Hoffman, who was his right hand at that point, bring me the designer. I want them to design my next computer, which was also starting in development right then. And Joanna said, I'm sorry, Tamiko's gone to Europe to become an art student, and I don't have any contact information for her. So if you look at the next cube from Steve Job, it's a perfect black box square. The connection machine, which came out before that, was a cube of, uh, of eight black boxes. And so there's a very clear progression there. And uh, if you... If you look at all of the designs that came after that and compare to what sorts of designs came out of Apple before that, you see that the next cube was really a, a change in Steve Jobs' visual aesthetic to what I like to call the technological sublime, really uh you know, what we expect and know of from Apple products now that that they will have some sort of mysterious form that implies that with this device, we will be able to completely change our lives and how we deal with the world. That was the feeling that the connection machine projected to the people who were in the market for a three to $5 million supercomputer and what Steve Jobs took over in his design of his products. And that was, of course, the point that convinced the Museum of Modern Art design collection to take a connection machine supercomputer into its collection as of 2016 and exhibit it 2017, 2019 in different exhibits. It's an amazing story. Yeah, it's super exciting. I was wondering now when you said then, yeah, you moved to Munich, you went to Art Academy. So how must it have 
felt coming from this, I don't know, MIT engineering, yeah, computer science background, working for these big companies to an art school in south of Germany. And yeah, you said you couldn't be reached. I guess, yeah, emails maybe in Germany didn't even exist at that time. So could you just explain a bit how, yeah, how you married your interest in engineering, computer science, physics, then with your art education and how it must have felt for you? Right. It took quite a long time, actually. I mean, I was in Boston in this MIT startup, really at the at the leading edge of, of high tech uh, in the U.S. And I had had an email since 1979 when, when I was in the Xerox Park uh, social circle back in Silicon Valley. Uh, so, so that was naturally how I communicated with all of my friends, my social groups, how we arranged wine tastings. But I was so entrenched in this technical world that I felt like when I uh, when I wanted to really move into an art world, I felt like I had to make a clean break with the tech world because otherwise it would just dominate my my thinking. And I wanted to reprogram my brain, if you will. <laughs> So uh, by circumstance, I landed in Munich, which was really kind of a quiet backwater in terms of art at that point. And no one uh, except for research people at universities had emails. I actually talked to a research scientist at Siemens and he said, I don't understand why anyone would ever want to have a computer at home. So um It was a very complete break. And, and people in Germany also at that point thought that technology was evil. So it was like, how could you possibly work for techno technology companies? And why would you want to work with technology? So it was really like jumping into um, an ice bath. <laughs> and my entire life, I was 27 years old at that time, was basically uninteresting, um, was considered, uh, you know, the wrong thing to have done with my life, etc. So, so obviously I was coming very much from the outside and uh, that outsider stance also probably <laughs> prevented me from really wanting to join the art world because I was coming from a world where anyone could talk to Nobel Prize physicists and be taken seriously. And all of a sudden, I landed in a world where the professors were gods, the students were worms who were crawling at his feet if he didn't bother to step on them and squish them. And it seemed like the only way that you could progress from being a worm to being a uh, uh, a top-selling, very cool artist was to be a total, pardon my French, asshole. So, um, so... I during that time I really kept on thinking, well, if someone who is really great and really has changed the world, like Richard Feynman, can be so warm and welcoming and open to talking to anyone who wants to learn more about quantum chromodynamics, then maybe that's what greatness is about. Maybe it's not about making other people feel small, but being inclusive, being welcoming and really looking at the world as your your family your context where you belong um and not separating yourself from it in order to seem more cool and uh better than 
the other people. Yeah, it's really interesting, I think, that you're telling that because I think also throughout your artistic work or like the work that you developed, then there's this very strong kind of yeah activist bottom up, almost this like yeah guerrilla feel around it. And I think um, maybe just to ask you about a specific work. So there's the art critic Face Matrix, which was your first uh, augmented reality work, which premiered in 2010. So that's also yeah 13 years ago as a path breaking AR intervention into MoMA in New York. And Yeah, maybe do you want to tell us like how you came to develop a yeah an AR piece that allowed or opened up the museum or the institutions to a broader public and how it relates maybe to the things that you were just explaining to us? Well, through friends. So I hadn't worked with AR at all, but um, I had uh, friends in uh, New York uh, who had been working with VR. Mark Skorak had started... Uh, um, Uh, working with AR, mobile AR, I think in 2010, maybe 2009. And he and another artist who was also already working with AR in 2010, uh, Sander Wienhof in Amsterdam, were chatting online about the technology, which was largely at that point using geolocation to locate artworks at the GPS coordinates uh, anywhere around the world. And they realized that since walls can't keep AR out and they can't keep it in, that they could just as easily place artworks in the Museum of Modern Art as, for instance, in the street in front of it. So, so they uh, called out to their networks and asked friends of them to contribute AR artworks in order to do a intervention into the into MoMA. And it's still a big question with augmented reality. They're invisible to the naked eye. You need what I like to co call an AR scope, a smartphone, in order to be able to see it, just like you need to have a microscope to see microscopic things or a telescope to think, see things that are so far away that you can't see them with the naked eye. So they called out for a flash mob in MoMA and understood that, you know, if just they too did an event in MoMA, it wouldn't have much impact. But if they got a lot of friends to participate, put up a lot of their artworks, then we would all bundle our networks, our PR networks, our, our social networks, get the word out, have more artworks there. So AR from the very beginning has been very strongly connected with social networks both in terms of human networking and in terms of social media, which I think is a really interesting point. So it, this was done as part of the uh, of a conference on psychogeography and was listed as a, an official event. And the the person who twitters for MoMA picked this up and tweeted it. So you can imagine that also expanded our, uh, our, 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 our network immediately right then. And I had, uh, I had created this, this piece, uh, a three-dimensional matrix of uh, my own distorted face that seemed to be screaming. And I was thought of it as screaming, AR will never become art. Just forget it. Give it, give it up now. 
So, uh, so that was placed in MoMA along with a whole bunch of other works uh, by Mark, by Sonder, by a lot of other friends who, a lot of whom came together uh, to, to form our artist group manifest.ar. And that was, uh, um, as far as I know, the first AR intervention, uh, certainly into uh, the uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's super exciting. I think that you intervene in yeah in public institution in public spaces. Your work revolves a lot about like yeah urban environments, and I think especially speaking to an architectural audience here as well, I think uh, it would be really nice if you could expand a bit more on yeah your interest in these yeah public spaces, but I think also in quite general in yeah spatial perception as your work is as you said before, location-based or geolocative AR. So could you tell us a bit, uh, yeah, why you think this is kind of necessary to experience and why do you think like the space itself is that, yeah, important interface? Part of it is, is that from the beginning, my work has been very spatial. Actually, the first artwork that I did in uh, in the Munich Academy that I really considered an artwork was a found object installation that I ca call the beauty and the beast, the conjugal bed. <clears throat> there are only a couple of uh, 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 photographs left from that because all of the pieces of that installation went into the garbage heap when I moved out of Munich. But um, I guess it's a question where to start. I mean, we probably have to start with my father's interest in the perception of buildings and urban space, built space, from the perspective of a person moving through that space in time. My father's name was Philip Thiel. He died in uh, 2014. But in um, 1991, he brought out his book, People, Paths, and Purposes, which was really his uh, magnum opus, the summation of his life's work, researching this, starting with uh, studies he had done as a special student of Kevin Lynch in the MIT Architecture Department and Jerry Kepish Center for Advanced Visual Studies, the first art and technology program in the U.S., also at MIT, and had progressed through his whole life looking at Japanese stroll gardens, looking at how often sort of European cities, city centers, the old city centers would be built with progressions that would lead you through the city and up to some grand building And this is the environment that I grew up in at home. And when I started uh, feeling like video art was not enough, that I wanted to have more and more screens, that I wanted to create spatial things, I, I decided to get involved in, in virtual reality. Progressing from virtual reality to augmented reality was for me also a very natural thing because I created between 1995 and, and 2008, I created three, besides Starbright World, I created three very large virtual worlds that were all always site-specific. One was based in the Manzanar incarceration camp in the high Sierras of California, where 10,000 Japanese-American men, women, children were imprisoned for the crime of having Japanese blood in World War II. Another one was uh, Complete Fantasy, uh, the travels of Mariko Horo set in uh, fantasy Venice, 
that I said was created by a time-traveling Japanese woman artist I named Mariko Horo, Mariko the Wanderer. And uh, the third one was a linear kilometer of the Berlin Wall and its surrounding neighborhoods in East and West. And the Berlin Wall, of course, is composed of the West Wall covered with graffiti, the Death Strip, and the East Wall. So all very, very spatial themes. And in these three artworks, it took about two years for me to build enough of the site that I could start playing around with what sort of artworks I wanted to place there, what sort of experience did I want to produce for someone moving through those spaces. So the switch to AR was actually a huge relief because instead of needing two years to build the site, I could use an existing site. And really the fastest artwork I think I've ever done in my life was uh, in terms of these sort of technological works was uh, the two hours I needed when I realized I was in Lisbon around the corner from the Largo do Carmo where the the, um, Carnation Revolution occurred in, I think it was 1974 or five, I can't remember which, where the military actually... um, Uh, chased out the dictator and said, we want democracy. And to show that they were of peaceful intent, they were, you know, they were walking around Lisbon with their military fatigues and carrying guns, but they put um, carnations in the barrels of their guns. And so um, I already had sort of a structure uh, which would produce a falling rain of objects. I quickly got a Uh, uh, a photograph of a carnation from the internet and bang, within less than two hours, I had made a site-specific work in Largo do Carmo where you have these red carnations raining down from the sky to uh, create a poetic memorial uh, to the democratic revolution we call the Carnation Revolution. So, I've always created installations. I haven't created singular objects or images that are in one place in space. I've always created 360 or spherical installations that are surrounding you on all sides. And in order to see the complete artwork, of course, you can't just stand there and look through, uh, you know, look at one image. You have to look up, you have to look around, you have to look down, you might have to get down or get up. And so this involvement of the body, uh, even if you're standing in one place, is also an involvement with the spatiality of the site and the spatiality of the artwork, just as it is when you're actually moving through a virtual world or moving through the real world. That's kind of a short answer. I don't know if that's enough. Yeah, I think it's it's super interesting and also very rare to marry this idea. I think also what you described of your father's work, so Philip Thiel, to integrate this idea of user or user participant in the city or in urban design. And I think this combination or this intersection of yeah, architecture, urban design with user experience and interface design and experience design is, of course, is almost like, yeah, the perfect match for creating AI installations. So I think, yeah, that's really interesting um, to hear. I also thought now when you described 
this strength of using existing site and also reacting very fastly to the given yeah, situation that you find and then creating an artwork on top of it about the the paper that you wrote together with Will Peppenheim uh, entitled Assemblage and Decollage in Virtual Public Space. And there's uh, a work by... Uh, Peppenheimer, that you uh, yeah that you link, which is called Skywrite. So this is an AI installation uh, that allowed people to create virtual skywritten drawings or messages that yeah literally popped up in the sky above them. So I just thought yeah it's interesting. Yeah, now you mentioned a public space in Lisbon that you related to, but to even extend the site to the to the sky. So. Uh, I was just wondering as yeah how you understand site or site specific work you also mentioned different kind of um yeah like location or geolocative AR so how you how you bind the digital information into the places that you find could you tell us a bit more about yeah whether it needs to be a building or it could be a street or it could be the sky or what's your What's your site in AR? It, it could be anything, but first off, I, I, I need to get the attributions correct. Skywriter is uh, Will Pappenheimer's piece that he did with, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Sa uh, I want to say Zachary Brady. I'm not quite sure if that's uh, correct. So um, so I just wanted to make clear I have nothing, I had nothing to do with Skywrite. Um, but um The, the the paper you mentioned was also our um, response to the writings of Riva Wright, who is an Australian artist and media theorist, who um, both Will and I and uh, John Craig Freeman, also from Manifest.ar, considered to be the best person uh, writing about AR and what AR really is about. And she talks about the concept of uh, assemblage that she, uh, she um, uh, uh, derives from Deleuze and Guattari's writing and says, you have to consider that augmented reality is a very large assemblage. It is not just the app. It is not just the smartphone. It is not just the computer graphic content. It is, of course, also the site because the site is always there. There's always a background of the environment that surrounds you at the time you look at it. You have to think of that background in the site, but it's also your body. It's your body, as, as I talk about, moving through space and looking around space. And then you get all the sorts of associative layers. What does that site mean? What does the action of looking mean? What does the content, the artwork content that's overlaid on the site mean? What's happening at that site? Are there people going by? Are you dodging cars? Is it raining? Is it cold? Is, is it sunny? And how does that whole, uh, whole assemblage create an artwork together. So really, um, whether, you know, whether you're inside a building, whether you're outside a building, whether it's above, below, around you is very much open. It's very much depends on, on what the artwork is about. And, um, Uh, one, one, one VR piece, which actually also uses this idea is Land of Cloud, which I did as a tilt brush artist in residence and uh, used the tilt brush 
um, if you don't know it, it's a program uh, first created by the Tiltbrush uh, group at Google where you can actually draw in three-dimensional space. And there's certain dynamics with the brushes, lots of different types of brushes. And I just went wild with this. I realized my entire body could be a brush as I'm moving these controllers around and creating these forms in space. So, so the garden is composed of different types of trees or plants. Each of one is created with a different type of, of bodily motion, whether it's a wrist motion or a sweep of the arm or of the whole body. And then in order to experience the space, you also ha uh, have to, as the user participant, uh, move in the space because there are these figures sitting, standing, lying in the space that are made out of sort of cloud, I call them my cloud people. And each of them is sort of staring at their, their cloud device, their mobile device, as it were. And you can hear them all talking and whispering, but you can't tell what they're actually saying until you go up to one, stand up to it, get on your tiptoes, sit down, lie down next to it, put your head into the head of this figure. And then because it has spatial sound that I was developing at, at Google Tiltbrush, you can hear what that one figure is saying. So again, it's about participating with your entire body and with um, as many senses as possible in order to really have an immersive experience, a, a really an, a surround experience. And that those are, of course, the features that, that VR and AR can provide that a painting or a film or a video cannot provide, not even a sculpture, although a sculpture is a little bit more. But of course, in VR and AR, we also have time-based media. Things can change, they can animate, and we can swap out entire worlds, you know? So in my all my VR worlds, there are these liminal um, uh, signs, for instance, an open door or stairs, or a figure standing there, and each of them indicates that if you go up uh, to those figures, go up the stairs, enter the building, then the entire world could change around you. It can take you from paradise into heaven, uh, uh, into hell, into um, a devastated city, into a fantastic garden. So, so these are all aspects that. Um, that I think uh, VR and AR, the whole mixed reality technologies provide that are, are relatively new for all of us who can't afford to build an entire palace like King Ludwig II did several times here in Bavaria or, you know, create entire temples and, and temple complexes like um, architects have been doing for thousands of years. Yeah, but I think what you just tapped upon, this idea of multi-sensory or full-body immersive experience is very key and I think is often underestimated as the yeah, technology is kind of mistaken for purely audio, audiovisual uh, medium. So I think it's really beautiful how you describe how the body and like the movement and the movement through space and all these different atmospheric perception of sights like raining or sun shining actually tap into the experience. Um, I think building on that, I would want, I was wondering if you could maybe 
uh, expand a bit on the experience of these user participants. So when you exhibit work, uh, are there certain responses or reactions to your work that have been repeating or that you find to happen more often than others? Is there something that is very memorable for you that might have happened at one point at one of your exhibitions? Well, one thing that um, that is is very common is that when people have a smartphone in their hands, they expect it to be an image, and they'll they'll try and swipe it. You know, they'll try and like zoom in on it. And so I, I have to constantly say, it's not it's not in your phone. Your phone is a window into another world. And then this discovery of being inside of an artwork is is a very common aha moments when people go, oh, wait a minute. You mean it's not just what I'm seeing in front of me. You mean I have stuff all around me. So so this this uh, difference between an image and a surround environment is is very common. And then and then uh, I'd like to very often play with sort of uh, a one-two punch where a piece looks very maybe cheerful, playful, bright, colorful on the first view. And then if you look closer, there's kind of a darker background. So for instance, I have a large number of pieces that deal with plastic waste, especially ocean plastic waste, because once it goes in there, we can't get it back out. So for instance, the uh, the commission for the Whitney Unexpected Growth is a coral reef that we built, I say we because it was done together with my art partner slash P. And it's the entire sixth floor of the Whitney, which is covered with this bright and colorful plastic coral reef. Because when you look closer, you realize that the individual components of this coral reef are actually plastic bottles or rubber duckies or plastic spoons and forks. And that uh, it's trying to surround you in the sort of environment that we are basically creating for all ocean dwellers right now. And because we don't dwell in the ocean, we don't notice it so much. But I want to take that experience uh, from this environment where you're unlikely to actually experience it in real life and bring it to you, you know, in your nice, clean environment, whether that's a uh, a museum or uh, a square or a field in, in your city. So again, that's a, a real sort of one-two uh, punch where where people are attracted, they're seduced into engaging with uh, this piece. And then when they really look at it, they realize that there's another uh, another aspect to it that, uh, you know, if I, if I had started out by presenting them with the, uh, with the destruction that the plastic waste is doing to the environment, um, they would have probably looked once and then said, I can't look at this, you know, this, I, it's just too much. So sometimes I, I, I uh, people say, "Oh, it's too playful," you know, it's too pretty, or something. But you can only, I can only look at those really horrible photographs of, you know, a dead bird whose inside is just full of plastics. I can only look at that a couple of times, and then and then I say it's just too traumatizing. I I know that that's happening. But if I can provide 
uh, a playful aspect, uh, an aspect that might even be beautiful, then I can get people to engage with it. And they'll also, they'll post it on their social media. And when they post it, they'll describe it and say, you know, this is warning about how plastic waste and disposable plastics are completely polluting our world. So it's a it's a way of getting a message out. I'm I'm acting as a virus piggybacking on other people's social media habits. Yeah, that's uh, I think this yeah, this idea of creating this awareness or creating yeah, creating this work with a certain intent um might lead us to the final question and I think this is asking what is your hope for the future like what is yeah where do you see this medium heading towards to how do you think virtual technologies will develop and i think maybe uh also how this relationship i think that is very present in your work between kind of spatial design or like yeah urban design or, or awareness for it uh, relates or taps into yeah the technology um how do you Yeah, how do you see that after all your years of practice within the field? You know, a number of, of AR pieces deal very much with the urban landscape, and and uh, one of one early or one with uh, Will Pappenheimer was Biomer Skelters, where in Liverpool we had a commission from Fact as as part of the Manifest.R uh, commission for the whole group, um, and he and I um, created a, uh, this piece where. Uh, where you had a heart rate monitor. We were working together with scientists at uh, Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, the um, Will was able to get funding from his university, Pace University, to have one of his gifted students build us an Android app that would take the heart rate, uh, take your heart rate, um, put it into our AR program. And as you walk through the city, If you, if you maintain your heart rate within a certain range, so not too fast, not too slow, then every 10 seconds as you walk through the street, then you are planting a flower bed. Now, we had two different groups. We had the exoticators and the indigenators. The indigenators were planting native plants to protect the native biome. The exoticators were uh, planting invasive plants trying to take over the city. And uh, we have a Google map online where uh, Will was able to also then track the progress of our plantings and you see how much how much uh, space in the city did the exoticators take over, how much did the uh, indigenators uh, were uh, able to defend. So, so this piece, especially like putting the the heart rate within a certain range meant that you had to go through the city at a rate that was not rushing through it and not just sort of dawdling in one place, but you were tuning your heart rate to the city. If you were going up a slope or down a slope, of course, then you had to adjust it because going up a slope will tend to speed up your heart rate. So it was a way of experiencing the topography of the city also. And of course, you had to like watch out for lights and oncoming cars and other pedestrians as well. So, so that was a really in-depth engagement with the urban space, with the city walk. And then in... Uh, The piece Rewild R, which the, uh, slash P and I got as a commission from the Smithsonian Institution, 
There also we were talking about uh, how can we change our city? And we looked at uh, native plants, plants native to the Washington DC area that would be able to withstand climate change and talked about the concept of rewilding a city, of bringing uh, the bringing nature back into the city by by covering you know any available surfaces whether those are parks or parking strips uh, or parts of gardens or or uh, roofs of buildings and and showing how if we could allow the the wildflowers if we could allow their pollinators to spread to the city then we could potentially also help re reduce the effects of climate change in the cities so so these are all ideas of of how um how we can use uh, a mixed reality to visualize a very different urban environment as before. But I think you also have to really look at the uh, work of Vanessa Keith, uh, Studio Teka in, in Brooklyn, who um, had come out with this amazing book called uh, um, uh, 2100, A Dystopian Utopia. And she looked at what does it mean for the world when it has four degrees of climate uh, change? What does it look like when we have 10 billion people on the planet? And part of the book is all these graphs saying, okay, this is how much space we've got. Guess what? We're all moving up towards the poles because you can't survive anymore at the equator. And then started saying, okay, but I'm an architect. I'm a uh, urban designer. How can I design cities that will make for a livable environment for human beings, even under these really horrible circumstances? And I met her, I saw the book, I said, you've got to start doing this as virtual reality. And then um, she has been acquiring the, the people and the knowledge and now the funding from Sundance Institute uh, and has been turning that into a participatory virtual reality game that really tries out these scenarios, designs for the future. And that I think, I think Vanessa's uh, um, work is really what uh, urban designers uh, should be looking at as to seeing how this technology can be used to help design and build a livable future for us and for our planet. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. But maybe as a little last question, you think in a few years we'll all be running around with uh, AR glasses on our heads or how will the future look like in which we experience these themes or in which we yeah, are more aware of that? Is that something that um, you think is probable, likable? What's your kind of wildest speculation? I think it would be wonderful. Um, I always start out uh, my answers to these questions. Uh, if I'm in a group, I say, how, I ask um, all the people to raise their hand who would be willing to wear glasses 100% of the time. And um, remarkably, few women are willing to wear glasses 100% of the time if they don't have to. So uh, I think there's some, uh, you know, the world is not composed entirely of geeks. There are other considerations, and that's, of course, something that people who talk about uh, our wildest dreams uh, don't um, plan for. 
um, contact lenses uh, are, are even more difficult in terms of technology. There's a lot of talk right now about, well, is Apple about to bring something out in June or not? Uh, there was just an article in the New York Times today saying that there's internal dissent at Apple because uh, people don't think that the product is going to be um, going to be really good for the company. They'll have to sell it at three thousand um, dollars per per device, and it won't really provide the uh, the sort of uh, functionality that. Uh, it needs and and people say yeah 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 but you know in three years it'll be there well you know since 2010 13 years that I've been in this uh, field with augmented reality people have always said in three years we will have AR glasses so um, maybe you know at some point it might be true but the technol technological challenges are are very great. Um, all the ones I've seen so far, you have this tiny, tiny window. So you have to be, you have to be like looking around to see anything in your virtual world um, because you've got a tiny little peak hole. So if you're complaining about, well, I don't want to be walking around with this tiny little smartphone in front of me, then will you be willing to walk around with an even smaller peephole in front of you and have this thing on your on your head? I don't know. Um, I would love it. I would love it if uh, if um, if you know we could walk around with contact lenses or or or, or glasses. Um, but um, but there's a lot of uh, uh, technology and, you know, when curators tell me, oh, I won't show any AR right now because I want to wait for the AR glasses to come out, my immediate reaction is, we'll both be dead by then. You know, so, <laughs> so like I say, <laughs> I've already waited 13 years for um, for that fantasy to come true. And I hope it'll come true in my lifetime, but I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for it. Okay, that's yeah, I can't wait for the next conversation we'll have in 13 years, speaking about all the amazing work you've been doing since. And hopefully we'll all have our contact lenses on and we'll be going like, look, look, hey, let me share this with you. I mean, I would love it. But, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to stop my entire life and my artistic practices uh, waiting for it to happen. Yeah. Thank you so much for everything you shared with us today and these amazing insights into your work. It um, has been super inspiring. Thank you, Tomiko. Thank you for your questions and for your interest. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Female Pioneers and the History of Virtual Reality. Next episode, we look forward to having you with us again as we delve into another extraordinary life of a female pioneer in the world of VR. Thanks for listening to this episode. Air AA podcasts are developed, recorded, mixed and edited by the Architectural Association from our home on Bedford Square in central London. To find more episodes, view the show notes and explore other Air AA series, visit air.aaschool.ac.uk.